The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools and investors seeking promising ag tech startups or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com or click the link in the show notes. Because it's a classic error for a lot of scale-up companies is to expand too quickly and overextend yourself. You get one vertical farm that goes wrong, or I don't know, there's an E. coli outbreak because you don't have the right policies in place and the operator who's bought the farm hasn't followed them. That'll come back to your brand. So that's a real, I think a really good case to be made for not expanding too quickly. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast, welcome back. Season five, still in full effect. If this is your first time listening, thank you so much for taking a chance on this podcast. You were probably searching for something about indoor ag controlled environment agriculture or vertical farming and you were looking for a podcast and you ended up here and so i want to roll out the welcome mat and tell you that you are definitely in the right place this is the show where we interview fascinating ceos and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world i'm your host harry duran in case you missed last week's episode we had a great conversation really fascinating deep diving sharing personal stories all the kind of stuff that i love to talk about on this show with uh, founder and ceo of ketos mina shankaran she joined the show to talk about her passion for leveraging disruptive technologies to make an impact as a social entrepreneur if you're not familiar with ketos it's a vertically integrated water intelligence platform on a mission to transform how water operators measure manage and forecast water quality Great episode talking about her immigration story, women in her strength, the group that she started, and her passion for solving existential problems and doing good at the same time. Please check it out if you haven't already. Last episode, episode 61. This week, another great conversation with the founder and CEO of Vertical Future, Jamie Burrows. He's a passionate leader with an extensive knowledge of the indoor ag tech space. If you're not familiar with Vertical Future, it's the world's leading vertical farming technology and research company, which provides revolutionary products and services that enable people and nature to thrive. And in this episode, Jamie and I talk about his passion for health, life sciences, and addressing critical issues like climate change, food inequalities, and population health. We dig in on Jamie's leadership style, the focus and mission of Vertical Future, and key milestones he's reached along the journey. As a reminder, if you're enjoying this episode or past episodes, I'm looking out for those ratings and reviews. You can leave one at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. I'd love to read yours out next. All right, let's get into this conversation with Jamie. So Jamie Burrows, founder and CEO of Vertical Future, thank you for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast. No problem. Thanks very much, Harry. And um, pleasure to be here. So where in the world are you dialing in from? I am da- dialing in from sunny Southeast London. Okay. Just there. But uh, yeah, I live down in Southeast London with my family. I just said dialing in from, and I probably dated myself with that reference because <laughs> I think I, it's been a while since I've had a, a phone or a rotary phone. I don't, I don't know if you remember how far back, or I think my parents held on to their, just their copper line for as long as they could. I don't know when the transition happened in, in the UK. I think ours was, I think our last copper line was, I don't know, a long time ago. It was definitely my parents, not us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think we, my three kids are not seeing those. Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. So I was uh, looking at a bit of your, your background and I, I thought it was interesting that you spent some time in the Air Force. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm half American. I grew up in America. So until I was yeah. kind of 10, 11, and, uh, and then I went back when I was 16 and did uh, some time enlisted and then uh, actually at the Air Force Academy. So yeah, always had a passion for flying and, and that kind of stuff. And then, uh, and then decided I didn't want to do a whole career in it, but did a good five years. It was a really, really good experience. What was life like growing up? Uh, was it in Florida where you grew up? No, I, so my mother was from Seattle and um, my dad was from Manchester. Okay. So we, I was born in Wales, then moved to Riyadh in Saudi Arabia, and then uh, very randomly, wow. and then back to Seattle, then back to the UK, then back to all over the US. Then I've been all over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which one of those was more of a culture shock? I mean, growing up in New York, I guess you had some of the, the references, but was it going and coming back or going to the UK in the first place? To be fair, I don't really remember because, I mean, yeah, they're all quite different. Yeah. I definitely don't remember, remember Riyadh when I was a kid because I was, like, I don't know, very young. But uh, culture shock, probably my wife and I, when we had our first child, we moved to Brussels in my mid-20s for a consulting role. Oh, okay. And that was quite interesting because, we lived right around the corner from the commission, and that was quite a culture shock in a good way. I really liked it there, but it was quite different from other places we lived. But I am, um, yeah, it was um, all very, very different experiences and lots of nice people in, in everywhere we've lived. Where did the fascination for flying and airplanes come from? So, my grandfather was a Spitfire pilot who actually was oh, wow. a US Air Force pilot, but he flew over. So he came over to obviously, you know, during World War II and maybe the Brits, I think if they're in North Africa as well. And yeah, I just really got a passion for flying when I was growing up. And uh, when I was 16, I the day before I was supposed to start my A-levels, I said to my parents, I'm going to join the military in the US. And you can imagine how that went down and um, found myself <laughs> on, a, uh, on a yellow bus uh, being shouted at by a drill sergeant in uh, San Antonio, Texas, uh, two days later. So that was wow. quite an introduction to uh, adulthood. So, <laughs> yeah, a bit of a shock for if I think for anyone who's joined. And, and thank you for your service, by the way, as well. But to show up at boot camp where the rules have been are quite different than they probably are at home is, I'm sure, always a bit of a shock. Well, I was certainly the only person with a British accent. So you can imagine how that went down with the drill instructor. So, oh, that's true. That's funny. So, how accurate for those interested are the Top Gun movies to what really happens in the Air Force? Top Gun's Navy. Oh, that's right, Top Guns. But I'm thinking about the flying scenes. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I've had some time in F-15. So I've had about 16 hours in F-15. Okay. Um, mostly incentive rides, and you know, I, don't, I did go too. I've got about um, got a lot of hundreds of hours of flying experience, but in smaller aircraft. But I've been in the Air Force equivalent, which is F-15, which has the vertical stabs. Stabilizers okay. at the back, and uh, yeah, it's incredible. But I can't really talk to operational service. You know, I've never been deployed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've never, you know, okay. gone to war or anything. So I, but um, but certainly the camaraderie and the way that people speak and things like that in the military was was certainly accurate. A lot of hazing and uh, in a good way, but <laughs> um, but yeah, I think the name and the effort are quite different. So I don't know. Yeah. Is there something I've heard from multiple pilots? There's this sense of calm you get when you're in the air and just that feeling of just like, you know, being in control of an aircraft, but also, you know, that time you get to spend is not something that that's something that very few people ever get to experience. And I'm wondering what that actual experience is like for you. It depends how many G's you're pulling. So yeah, you can have some, uh, <laughs> some very calm moments uh, in the air, but um, ultimately, yeah, if you're, if you're doing a, um, I've never done really kind of crazy stuff. And most of mine was training. So I was in the back, but um, I pulled, I don't know, 6.5 Gs. And uh, that's certainly not a car. But yeah, when you're up there, even in a small aircraft, you know, a Cessna 172 or something, which I learned to fly in, or, uh, you know, they, you do have a certain degree of calmness and uh, separation from everything else that's going on below you. It's hard to think about uh, any other thing about like whether if you took the trash out that day when you're, when you're, when you're and I imagine when you're at six and a half G's, that singular focus, I think is something that's pretty interesting as well. Yes. <laughs> From what I can recall, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So just transitioning there. So when you left the Air Force and you started to focus on your career, did you have an idea what type of work you wanted to get into? And I noticed you've had a couple of stints in consulting as well. 
Yeah, so I came out and obviously, you know, I, I needed to figure out what I wanted to do next. So I completed my degrees. So I did a bachelor's in economics and master's in energy trade and finance, and then took my first role on in economic regeneration. Uh, considered going into banking and uh, got some offers and decided not to go down that track, which I think was a, a good choice in the long run. Who knows, right? And uh, then in parallel with that kind of four-year economic regeneration role, I I did a a PhD, which I haven't quite finished yet because other things have taken over my life. Okay. But I'm only a couple of papers away. And then, yeah, and then I kind of hopped from consulting company to consulting company. They were poaching me along the way. And um, so that's when I went to Brussels. And then I came back to EY in London. And then I got another job. And that next job that I got, I didn't really like the environment. So that's um, that's where the consulting career stopped. I had a nice comment in the Department of Health during that time, which was really interesting because my, despite forgetting about all the Air Force stuff, my discipline has always been in economics with a, a focus on health and life science. That's kind of really been my passion. So, so that was certainly a, a really interesting and varied experience for me. Where do you think, or can you point back to the origins of your interests in, in health and life sciences, like where, where that came from? Sure. Yeah. I, well, in economics, I've just been fascinated. And actually, I had a very good professor at, at university. So obviously, I had to cho- choose business economics before. Well, I chose business economics before seeing any of my professors. So nobody inspired me into that. I just chose that. But in terms of health, my mother was a um, an NHS chief exec. So, you know, health and the National Health Service and anything health-related discussions around the dinner table would occur on on a very regular basis. So that's probably where it came from. So yeah, I've I've taken probably inspiration from people in my family for things I've done in my life in those kind of last two. I mean, I'm 36 now and and I've effectively had three careers, you know, the the military, the uh, the consulting, now all this ultra vertical future. So it's been quite interesting. Can you recall when indoor ag, controlled environment agriculture, like when that started to appear on your radar or you started hearing about it? Yeah, so a, a really good friend of mine mentioned it to me. I'd, I'd left that last role in consulting. He sent me a, a kind of a, an article on a, a company in the US, a shipping container, doing the container farming, which isn't necessarily, I mean, it's just one small part of the, obviously, the overall sector. And um, it's the first I'd heard of it, really. I was kind of, I was pretty fascinated. And, and when I think about economics, I think the first thing that came to my, my mind was, you know, efficiency allocative and technical efficiency and how you use space. And, and really that's what a container farm's about in the most basic sense, you know, yeah. making the most possible use of space and putting it in a location where it would, you know, you otherwise wouldn't grow food. And yeah, I was inspired by that. And then just, you know, I'd had, uh, had some life experience my, from a personal standpoint, both my parents had passed away in the, in the kind of two years prior to, and, you know, I had a little bit of inheritance, two kids at the time under four years old and just, yeah, decided that if I'm going to do something, then, you know, I should uh, just go for it really. And, and, and I think that idea was one that I felt had the most legs. There were some other ideas I formulated. One was in kind of, uh, you know, focused on health and okay. it was more focused on the digital space. But uh, And then actually when Vertical Future was set up, it actually had kind of different themes around it, different verticals really. And then it, it just so happened that we really ran with the vertical farming aspect for a multitude of reasons. And I'm sure many, sure many of them in, in this discussion. And so how did you think about what approach you wanted to take? What specific track within vertical farming was most interesting to you to pursue? And then as a, if I'm correct, first time CEO, what are the, some of the things you start to think about as you try to decide what, how do you actually go about building a team to support you on this? Well, I've run teams in, in EY and also in, in the company I was at after was IMS Health, which became, a, which had merged to become UEIA, I think. So, you know, I had some experience and I think looking back kind of seven to 10 years, I had a tremendous amount of exposure to what a good leader is, what a bad leader is at the Air Force Academy, of course. And so many examples was mentored, you know, personally by colonels, a general on, on several occasions actually completed a leadership enrichment and development program. So I, I had um, some knowledge and understanding of how you should build and run a team. And then also some 
looking at myself, you know, you know, what are my personality traits and how could they actually be applied to building a team? And, you know, what kind of leader am I? Am I a, more of a assertive leader that wants to, you know, have a tyrannical structure, which is <laughs> usually doesn't end up very well. And uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm a big guy anyway, so that wouldn't work. So yeah, I, I think I had a good idea about how to, to go about it and some good experiences and people to call on from my past. And also I've, I've been very fortunate in my life to have, you know, after my parents have passed away, you know, have some mentors who you know, can give me some experience and, you know, fill, you know, not fill the whole gap, but, you know, fill parts of that gap. I think I was going to ask that. Are there some mentors or managers that come to mind that had a, an impact on you and, and your development, your professional development? Yeah. So, I mean, looking over the six years of Vertical Future VF, you know, we've, our first chairman, Amish Davidson, who stepped down last year after, you know, five years of service, uh, was a um, really good mentor to me. And then more recently, Lord Chris, who ran the National Health Service, who's our our current chairman has been tremendously supportive. But interestingly, I, I think, you know, when it comes to mentoring, you don't necessarily need to have one mentor or one coach. Yeah, You can really, you can form, you can learn things from people from different lived experiences from those people and kind of sure. everything together and then figure out, you know, this is the kind of plus, these are the things I need to change in my company and about myself to be more successful or make us more efficient. But I mean, going, I, I didn't fully answer your question, but in terms of choosing the, the kind of vertical farming model that we, we elected to go for at the beginning, it was myself, my wife, obviously we had our two kids at home. We had no family in London. We had about a hundred grand to put in to build a small farm. We had, we took an abandoned warehouse and we had a full debenture on our assets. So if it went bust, we lose everything. So it was wow. tremendously, I mean, I've told the story many times. You've probably read it. So that was the, you know, the vertical farming model we chose was somewhat governed by the amount of capital that we had available at the time yeah, and the amount of yeah. resource. So I had a bit of money on the, on the side, which I used to support my family, so I didn't pay myself. And then we decided to set up the equivalent of probably three or four shipping containers in, and, and shipping containers usually have about 30 square meters of growing space, sometimes a bit more but within an indoor setting and the unit economics of vertical farming demand that, I mean, it's all about space and scale. And if you want to compete, then you need big farms, you need a lot of capital. We were kind of forced into the bracket of selling, you know, your premium, premium quality, but also premium price, microgreens and things to restaurants. We, the first couple of years of the business were just going around and working night shifts because the way that chefs work is, you know, they finish their shift and then they literally they want to put their order in for the next day. And because they're pericles, yeah, yeah. you know, literally. So, so I'd work until probably five in the morning. We had a couple of people to help with deliveries in the morning. We had wow. a person to help me at night. Marie, my wife, would do deliveries in the morning. And then we really just built a customer base from there. And a lot of it was about, didn't spend money on marketing. It's about word of mouth, getting a couple of good chefs on board who supported us. And then obviously, you know, just building from there. And that's how we've built the first part of the business. I mean, our business has really evolved over those, over the past kind of roughly six years, but learning kind of being down in the trenches and understanding actually how to not lobby capital into a successful business that people value and can actually stand behind the quality of the produce and the service. I mean, service shouldn't be forgotten here is always a big achievement for us. And um, got a lot of support. I'm curious, or I'd be remiss if I didn't ask what the conversation was like with your wife <laughs> as you're getting ready to go down this path and what that conversation at the dinner table must have been like to, and if she knew what she was going to be signing up for. The conversation when we first started talking about virtual future was, I think probably, you know, Marie has always been very, you know, Marie, my wife has always been very supportive of me and my ideas. And, you know, we knew it was a big risk. But I think we just went for it, just said we've been through so much in the years prior to that from a personal standpoint. So it actually wasn't really too difficult a conversation. Clearly, we had no experience in the sector. So there was a big learning curve. But I think we were confident enough in ourselves and our abilities to be able to make it work. 
And how much of the experience that you had, because you had all the previous experience at these consulting companies, and I imagine a lot of having worked in a couple of finance companies where we had consultants come in, their ability to really just see the big picture, understand operationally where there's places for improved efficiencies. And so I think a lot of those skill sets that you may have had, did those come into play as you were thinking about how to hit the ground running and what was the most effective and or efficient way for you to get started? Honestly, I didn't really take a lot from the previous experiences. Oh, really? <laughs> I think actually my military experience was in the structure, okay. which was obviously years before, I think helped a lot. I think the experiences in consulting and in data, obviously the most recent ones prior to setting up Vertical Future, have really come into play and are much more useful now because you learn a lot of invaluable skills. I mean, people underrate things like how to deal with a client, how to pitch, how to do a really good PowerPoint, how to do an Excel model, yeah. Yeah, how to do a fully integrated kind of corporate finance model, integrating with yield data and all this kind of All of these things, when we evolved our business into, into more of a tech business, came in handy because in that kind of mid-stage, which I'm sure we'll go on to talk about, yeah. we're still very much doing bits of everything and still am to a degree. So I think they did come in handy then. I think any consultant you speak to from any of the big four consulting firms will tell you that PowerPoint or Excel were big takeaways for them if they ever left. <laughs> Pivot tables. Pivot tables, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so Jamie, talk, give us the sped up version you launched in 2016. So maybe just taking it, if you think of it as snapshots, 2017, 18 to present, give us some milestones that happened along the way to get us to bring us to present day. Sure. So 2016 to 2019 was what I would say the new growers. We split the vertical farming sector into kind of grower brands who are now having to raise a lot of capital because the scale is required and demand answer. Yeah. And then we got that just about into profitability, which was good. I mentioned earlier, we were selling premium. We were also selling and competing with traditional farms and glass houses on pricing in, in London. So yeah. we didn't actually put a big premium on a lot of our products. So again, I think that was a major achievement at that stage. In 2019, we did a roughly a 4 million pound raise just over. Okay. That's fun here in the UK. At that stage, we realized that there were two major, it's kind of a crossroads. And we realized two things. One is, I just mentioned it. If you're a grower, it's very, very, very capital intensive and it will continue to be for the next. Yeah however long vertical farming exists, which I, I think is a permanent fixture in our economy. So that was the first one. And at that point, you know, I didn't really have the investment context to four million pounds unless you want a very, very basic system, which is very OPEX intensive, is not, not a lot of money. We'd still we'd have to fundraise really quickly again after that, probably. So and then the second realization was that the technology we've been using, which was from a supplier here in, in the UK, it was, you know, one of the very, one of the very popular international lighting LED suppliers who I won't mention. Great lights, yeah. Dutch beds, very standard vertical farming systems. No automation, no data sure. integration, no end-to-end -end integration with any of the ancillary components. And I just realized that this is just so inefficient. And so we decided, we said, look, you know, first of all, let's take a step back and let's build a company now leveraging all of that prior growing experience and our knowledge of the market and how to interact with customers and actually build something which has as much as possible in-house so that we can actually then go to a company like us three years ago and say, look, here's the system, yeah. here's the data, here's the expertise, here's the know-how, here are the standard operating procedures. Let's hold your hand through the first year of building this. And there was there's still a huge deficiency in that. I mean, there are companies that are piecemealing bits of tech together. It's almost like having Bow and Lego and trying to somehow make them fit. Sure. And yeah. so, yes, yeah, so we went on that route, built three teams, three core teams, software engineering, engineering, and plant R&D. You can look on our website. We have amazing people who took, I won't tell you, they took, you know, pretty big pay cuts to come and work for us. Now being rewarded because of where we are three teams and then fast forward three years our kind of next milestone following on from that decision to develop 
the technologies was our first major sale, which was a two and a half million pound project in the Midlands. It was a group of entrepreneurs who'd uh, been in, in dentistry. You, know, you can check them out. They're in uh, Ned Cyan Farms. Uh, they're building a very interesting brand in their own right. They've also got some other verticals in their business around, you know, vegan food and so on and on-site production. Of, I'm a meat eater, but I am... Um, I eat less meat now, but I've tried their products and they're amazing. So yeah. they instilled a lot of trust in us. Okay. In 2020, I'm sorry, in early 2021, we signed our first contract to build that farm. We're, we're just about to complete okay. that. During that time as well, we, we also deployed a lot of shipping containers to various customers, uh, one being a company called Crate to Plate in London. Again, I mentioned okay. the unit economics of vertical farming. It's very predicated on scale. However... We do believe yeah. that shipping containers can be used for things like learning and education, outreach, premium mm -hmm. products, ultra urban growing, and so on. So we believed in their model as well. So we kind of put a mini version of our automated system, stripped out some of the automation and worked with them. And they'd been working okay. previously with one of the biggest shipping container suppliers globally. So that was another, again, another really important milestone. They're about to complete. So both the companies I've just spoken about have just completed or are completing good investment rounds and are kind of really first two pivotal customers, but I'd say partners because we've really, they've trusted a lot yeah. of us and we've, you know, it hasn't been a smooth ride when you develop an entire tech system, including the SaaS around it, because it's fully automated. I haven't gone into the detail of our system, but it's, it's end to end as many components developed in house. It's challenging and there are errors and there are mistakes and any tech company that says otherwise are aligned. So it was that. <laughs> and then the next major milestone has been our recent 22.3 or 0.4 million pound raise, okay. which is our series A that completed about three months ago. We did that without any venture capitalists. We, we actually turned down some pretty substantive offers from some large VC funds and decided to keep it at this stage, the series A stage a cap table structure which consists of ultra high net, net worth and individuals who, who believe in what we're doing and whilst that's a bit of a headache when it comes to paperwork and shareholder and state management we just felt that it was better for our company at this time for our series b we we may do something uh, different and then fourth milestone fourth or fifth milestone where we are i think has been really building our commercial team because i mentioned those projects we've sold you know oh, okay We've had millions of pounds of revenue over the last couple of years, but we've done that without a commercial function. In the past three to four months, we've built our first kind of outward looking commercial function, which has generated a lot of business for us. So I think that's another really key milestone. Very interesting. Yeah, a lot of points there to sort of pull apart. I want to circle back to your mention of the in-house tech stack that you've built. Can you elaborate on that and why that was an important decision for you and to the extent that we can cover some of the components of that and how they all integrated and work together? Sure. So I think that they're on our side of the equation. So if you've got the growers over here and you've got the tech providers over here, you have a lot of companies that are building discrete components. So it might just be lights and really great lighting companies. Yeah. But then you've got what I would call systems integrators. So they'll they'll piecemeal tech from different people, position it as a system of their own and sell it on. And there's a really big one I'm not going to mention okay. that are getting a lot of airtime. They're, they're a systems integrator. We know they're CapEx and it's very high. And okay. it makes sense for the CapEx to be high because they're having to eat the margins from the people they're buying from and then they have to sell it on and make a margin themselves. And then, of course, when you are piecemealing different bits of tech together to build a vertical farm, you need a software system that's going to be able to fully integrate all those different bits of tech. And if you're piecemealing it, it's very difficult. Yeah. You, know, you could go and, um, you know, if I start going down to my kitchen and try to integrate my, I don't know, Philips um, washing machine with my, I don't know, uh, fridge from some other other brand, that doesn't make most sense. Yeah, LG. <laughs> LG, yeah. I forget all these brands. The principal decision to do everything in-house, even though it was a really, it still continues to be a very challenging task because you have to go through so many stages of tech development, yeah. hardware side and the software side, and it's very expensive, was mainly to have an end-to-end -end system. So if, you know, these are long-term infrastructure projects, things will break and customers will come back and they'll say, right, I don't know, I need this replaced. So you need very clear maintenance regimes. If you're coming back to one central party, 
who's responsible and legally responsible for that you know, long-term maintenance regime, it's far easier. Secondly, if you're building everything in-house, your CapEx is going to be lower because you're doing yeah. it yourself. You have full control of it. Thirdly, we've, as part of our recent investment round, we've actually invested a lot in-house manufacturing. So being able to actually then even take a step further in controlling the supply chain, going straight to the commodities market to get our steel has given us more control and brought down the, obviously, you know, brought down prices for customers on, on the CapEx side. So for this sector to really work, we need cheaper systems that are more advanced. And the two of them yeah. don't usually go hand in hand. So I think the baseline for the sector has been that a, a more advanced system, which has R&D level capabilities, has to be way more expensive. But it shouldn't have to be, really. I think an R&D level system in terms of the level of control and flexibility you have should be implicit within a vertical farm because a vertical farm is going to be dealing with many different crops and all of these crops like different things. So you need that control and flexibility. You can't just have one type of light, 60% red, 40% blue, whatever you yeah. That'll work. That's fine. The question is, are you going to achieve those long-term economies of scale? And are you going to be able to actually build a system that can compete at price parity with cheap foreign imports? We're pretty sure, I mean, people are very private. We're pretty open about what we're doing. People are very private about, in our sector, about what they're doing. But we're pretty sure that there are a lot of lies. Maybe lies is a bit more, <laughs> but there's a lot of overselling going on. Yeah. So no, a company will pick their highest yielding crop and say, this is your average yield for the year. And this is what you should, you should be selling. And we're going to build you a 10,000 square meter farm and you're only going to grow micro radish or micro broccoli, not a hell of a lot of microgreens, and nobody's going to buy that. I mean, some people will buy it. It's a limited market. It will saturate. So we're taking a very different approach. Despite the fact that today we, we're moving on to, I think the next size farm we're building is, I think, roughly kind of 11,000 square meters. Okay. We're, we're still not even close to the scale that we want to be at in terms of making unit economics truly work. I mean, they do work at that scale for particular crops. But for some of these other crops being mentioned in the sector, we need to be to be getting much bigger and we need to be maintaining you know, bringing that CapEx point down. And I think what you've probably already discovered is having all the different components of that tech stack in-house, you have the different teams able to talk to each other about what's working, what's not, whereas if they were separate or outsourced and there was a need for the software to work differently with the lighting or the irrigation it'd be a harder challenge to sort of, to your point, like earlier analogy, like the Lego block, these things together, whereas it becomes, I imagine there's regular meetings where everyone's talking and everyone's saying, hey, the software's not working for this specifically. And I think having that as a cohesive team that can feed off each other and see where the progress is being made and where there's gaps and rooms for improvement, I think is probably proving very valuable for you. Indeed. I, well, I would say that Having a business which has a software and a hardware arm and an infrastructure arm, an operating arm, is very challenging from a manager. <laughs> and as you scale, yeah. and this is the phase that we're in now where we have, it's not a case of not we have projects, it's more a case of choosing which projects we pursue. Because especially when you start going internationally, I mean, you really have to, we have this continual development pathway on the kind of hard engineering side. We have a wraparound software solution, which is being enriched by internal R&D. But if there are breaks in communication between those teams, you can have problems. So it, from a technology standpoint and an overall offering standpoint, when it works, and it is working, it's great. But you really have to carefully, as our business moves forward and close to 60 staff now, we were only 10 staff a year and a half ago. I think wow. it's really, really important from a managerial standpoint and across the entire C-suite to ensure everything joins up in a very cohesive manner. And I think that's a challenge for most companies. It's just, I think, for ours, is probably a bit more complex because of the number of areas that we have involved. Jamie, can you talk a little bit about your specific focus and you know where you're headquartered? You're in the UK, and I imagine because of the, the experience you have there and because of the system you've created there, I feel like you're best suited to understand sort of the lay of the land there and you know what the opportunities are that exist in the UK. 
you know, better than most. So can you talk a little bit about your expertise there? Yes. So we have become R&D center in, in Deptford, which is very close to Greenwich. So for those who don't know where Deptford is, it's Southeast London, just across from Canary Wharf. That's where we've been for six years. We have R&D center there and our older site, which is not our tech above that's a kind of big two-story warehouse. We've got a headquarters at the bridge. So just, just by the mayor's office and Tower Bridge. So if you want to come and have a a nice meeting with us and, and then sit out opposite Tower Bridge. It's very nice in the summer. In the winter, it's not so good. And then <laughs> we have a manufacturing site north of London. Then we have, I think, eight or nine deployed vertical farms across the UK. Relatively small, obviously a larger one coming online with Sign Farms in the next kind of six to eight weeks. Okay. And then our bigger focus has been, and there are some confidential aspects to this, so I can't talk too much about it, but as I mentioned, you know, our next okay. farm is an 11,000 square meter farm. We have infrastructure funders who we're talking to who could, what, who do want to support us with this undertaking. I think there's been, okay. I can't talk to the European markets, but I can certainly say that in the UK market, we've seen a, a change in the way that investors are looking at the sector. So previously, if you spoke to a PE fund or a VC fund, they would look at it as a you know, parent level company investment and expectation for an exit or return in a very short time horizon. Whereas infrastructure funds who have traditionally done things like solar and other kind of more you know infrastructure focused assets or investments, sorry, I think they're starting to turn towards it and notice that there's a real opportunity here, not just in terms of making money, which funds obviously want to do, but to do something meaningful. So from an ESG standpoint and tackling some of the challenges that we all face. I mean, food security, food yeah. processing, supply chains. I mean, I don't need to go through them all because I'm sure all of your all of your listeners and viewers are aware of all the challenges we face. Sure. Yes, yeah, so I think the UK climate will probably see some of the US players coming here and some of the other European players, and I'm aware of it already. I think people underappreciate that even in a country the size of even in the UK, you still need to spend a hell of a lot of money on building out vertical farming or glass house infrastructure, even have or a single digit share of the market for a specific product. We're talking about hundreds of millions, in fact, moving into the billions of capital investment that are required over many years to make it happen. So it's a really hot topic, vertical farming it should be, but it's really, I mean, this is a long-term sector. And of course, there will be companies that will do couple of investment rounds, raise as much money as they can, do an IPO, great, good for them. But if we really wanted to do this correctly, we could do this for 10, 20, 30, 40 years and really build out a proper kind of reactive or protectionist system where we're food independent in, in some ways. Not for every product, clearly. I'm not, I'm not going to be one of these fanatics that says that we should grow I don't know, avocados and things in vertical farms. I think it's absolute fantasy. Of course, you can't yeah. grow it, but it's a, question, it's a question as to whether or not you should grow it because do the unit sure. makes work. So yeah, I think there are many opportunities in the UK and we'll continue to see build-outs. I think most of the build-outs will be in the more rural or peri-urban areas. It's not, we tend to deviate away from the term urban farming. Because okay. we talk very much about you know CEA or vertical farming, but yeah, certainly the UK is going to be a big focal point in the future. Yeah, I think this topic of food independence is really top of mind for a lot of folks, given what's been happening in the past couple of years. And I think you're really at the forefront in terms of figuring out which are the crops that you can specialize in that that allow that, but also because of all the R and D and work you're putting into the company. I think there's opportunities which may not have surfaced yet, but are, are sort of bubbling around in the minds of the folks on your team in terms of what's possible. Yeah, I think we'd like to, there's a process, right? I mean, there's the saying, you know, don't run before you can walk or even crawl. Yeah, yeah. I feel like a lot of the sector has kind of jumped to the running or even sprinting stage without really properly validating the tech all. And I think the sector will pay for that in future years or actually the buyer of those systems will pay for that. And that's not to claim that we have the best system in the world. We don't know if we have the best system in the world because we don't know what everybody else is doing. I mean, we have a good idea and a good understanding of based on what people share, but 
I think getting it right at, at a small scale and understanding it and then building up is really important. It's maybe not the thing that early stage investors want quite a lot. And that's one of the reasons why we didn't go with a VC for this round. We wanted to, to have, have more time to kind of still develop the tech, make sure that we hit those proof points and then really, really scale because, I mean, that's the proper way to do it. And there's a reason why we're doing most of it in the UK. I mean, we have a lot of opportunities globally that we could go for, but if you can't prove, I mean, we've hit proof points at particular levels of scale, but you've run these farms for a while, monitor them and make sure that everything's good from a yield standpoint, from a system standpoint, from a maintenance standpoint, before really kind of expanding out. So I think, you know, the only other geography that we've targeted, I mean, there are three core geographies for us, which are UK and mainland Europe, the Middle East and Southeast Asia, specifically okay. Singapore. We've got a partnership in Singapore. We've been working on that for 18 months and a and, uh, huge company that we're working with there. In the Middle East, we have a lot of opportunities, but we're kind of holding fire for now to determine when's the right time to kind of push the, the go button on those based on what we're doing in the UK. Because it's a classic error for a lot of scale-up companies is to expand too quickly and overextend yourself and yeah. satisfy your customers. And you know, you, you get one vertical farm that goes wrong, or I don't know, there's an E. coli outbreak because you don't have the right policies in place and the operator who's bought the farm hasn't followed them. That'll come back to your brand. So sure. that's a real, I think, a really good case to be made for not expanding too quickly. Makes sense. Are you discovering specific regional challenges when it comes to working in Singapore and the Middle East, different than obviously anything you might see in the UK? There's far more government intervention. And I think a lot of, which we knew before, I think the Middle East, sure. you have to understand the culture. You need to have local partners and things are just in a different way. You know, I, I, uh, I was in the Middle East two weeks ago and trying sitting having dates and tea that I've never tried before, which were, was delicious. And just culturally, I think it's very important to understand how they work. And, and a lot of that is ingrained in, in the way that they approach business. Same thing goes in Singapore. In Singapore, you find yourself having a very serious business day and, and going in quite heavy night drinking sake. This is kind of <laughs> how business is done. And you could say the same thing about the UK. Yeah. I think the way that the, if I've, talking, I've spoken specifically about the customers that we or the partners that we've spoken to and are working with, but more so it's more difficult to get a project off the ground in those geographies because there are more hoops to jump through, there are more regulations. In Singapore, for example, you require a farm license. So it's um, it's more challenging. The UK has far less red tape. I don't think UK is moving fast enough, actually. I think there should be more policy and more thought leadership that goes into this and how we want to position this. Like It is going on in the background, but it's just not as evident as the Middle East and uh, Southeast Asia, Singapore, and probably some other parts of the world as well. Fascinating to just get a taste for what the different cultures are like. And just to your point, like without having that on the ground knowledge of how business is done, you'd probably find yourself at a disadvantage if you didn't have that experience trying to go into those markets and then just trying to learn it on the spot. Completely. I mean, you know, we were told that it happens again and again. You know, you see foreign companies showing up and knocking on the door and just not understanding how things are done. And maybe that's one reason why we haven't seen the build out of vertical farming systems to the degree that you would expect in a place like the Middle East, because the Middle East is a perfect candidate. You know, they very little arable land, sure. high prices, growing population, impact of climate change, many, many reasons. A lot of capital, so investment is really not an issue out there. Why have we not seen more large-scale vertical farms? I mean, a, couple of, a couple of the US companies have gone over, they've been some local companies, but I would have expected to see a, a much, yeah. much more rapid expansion, but maybe the reasons we've discussed, you know, the underlying basis for that. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So a couple of questions as we come to a close here. I'm curious, what's a tough question you've had to ask yourself recently? So energy prices has been a big one for us. It's yeah. questions on it every week. And it's something we've thought a lot about. I think when we developed our system, we focused on a very different approach to, you know, if you watch videos of our systems, it looks very different than other vertical farms. We focus a lot on power and on lights and on manipulating different wavelengths 
of light to bring about different uh, expressions in crops. So focusing on the primary or the secondary metabolism of the crop, focusing maybe on blue and green and then a bit of red or, you know, these are the plant plant recipes. This is where the IP is actually. There isn't really a lot of IP in the actual hardware. Yeah. So we response to the kind of inflection in energy prices, which we kind of preempted. We've been doing this research anyway, is just to figure out where we can push the boundaries. You know, how, how can we shape the cycle of the crop? Probably I didn't articulate that in the right way, but how can we trick a crop to grow in a particular way and manipulate the conditions so that we're actually using less energy, but creating more biomass and also maintain quality uh, principles. And we posted something on LinkedIn recently, you know, we found with, I think it was a butterhead lettuce variety. We did a whole load of things, mostly around light and selecting different light wavelengths at, at levels of intensity throughout the growing process. And we found that we use roughly 25% less power. Also adding to the fact that our lights, because the way they're designed, emit less heat, which means as a positive externality, we use less power across the plant anyway, because it isn't the ancillary system sure. have to work as hard. But through those tests, we found, you know, 25% less energy, but we saw it between a 20% and 43% increase in biomass growing cycle, which just shows wow. that it disproves the whole point about just putting some shelves up and putting some really high wattage lights and just blasting energy at a crop yeah. is the way forward. It's really not. So I think this is where our approach of centralized R&D and we've got 10, sorry, nine PhDs and one who's almost got a PhD. I shouldn't sing, single, single him out, but amazing plant scientists <laughs> all focused on different areas. So yeah, that's probably been the biggest thing for us and it's something that we are tackling because if investors or the market think that vertical farming is dead because prior to the energy price inflections, they were already saying, oh, it's too, in, in, too energy intensive, too carbon intensive. Then oh, yeah. the sector's in trouble. So we have to find, it's almost like flying a plane. You know, you have to, you know, throw out some countermeasures if you see a missile coming at you. So yeah, so that's been the biggest topic recently. And I appreciate you bringing full circle with the airplane reference too. Thank you for that. <laughs> and yeah, it's interesting because to your point, it's one of those fields that there's never going to be a shortage of problems to fix and for creative and highly intelligent people who thrive on finding solutions to problems like this. I think there, to your point, you sounds like you've got the right team in the right environment to figure out just how to move forward with these sorts of challenges. We have an excellent team and it's a, it's very diverse in skill sets and in other ways, it's definitely, um, yeah, it's the team that makes it or breaks it. And it's definitely not a sector where you have oversupply of people who have expertise in this. So Finding good people and holding on to them is very, very important. So last question for you, just on a personal level, Jamie, I mean, I imagine there's a different experience and a feeling and excitement about where you were when you started this in 2016. Like, so what keeps you motivated? What keeps you excited, you know, six years into this with all the growth and the challenges and the success you've had along the way? I'm just curious on a personal level, like what has you excited about the future? Well, from a, from a personal standpoint, I do really believe in the fact that what we're doing is addressing very important topics and will continue to. And actually the R&D work that my team will continue to do through the years is just going to make our offering better and better and address, you know, I'm a big believer in climate change. I really think that a lot of the data is underreported. I think we're going to have massive problems with agriculture in the future. So, yeah, I mean, and didn't talk a lot about health, despite being from a health background, but I really think there's a big health angle related to vertical farming. You hear stories and there's peer-reviewed studies relating to declining sperm counts in places in Africa because they have overexposure to pesticides and babies being born without limbs. Yeah. This is really, yeah. pesticide use is, which is a necessity, actually, if you're growing outside, because you, know, you have to be able to grow the crops but it's not indoors. So that's another reason. But personally, my main driver is not really my personal successes. You know, I enjoy my job. I, I love it. It's more so my kids. I want to be able to do something that's had an impact on the world, as cool as it may sound. And when I'm older, I can say to my kids, look, we built a nice company and it's doing good things and we have happy customers and you know, these people over here are eating produce grown at farms that we developed the tech for years ago at fair prices. We've done something good. 
And I think that's a nice story to tell your kids. I've, you know, I've got three, the eight-year-old, a six-year-old and a six-month-old. I'm not having any more. <laughs> I think, mind you, it's not me that has to have them, but we're not having any more. <laughs> mind you, I've said that several times. And so, yeah, I think that's really the main driving force, you know. Family, I think, is a real driving force for many people, not just entrepreneurs. So it's not really a personal gain that is something for me. And the money side of things, of course, you know, we're building a big company. We have a 100 million plus valuation. That's all well and good. But if you're not happy in your job and it's been proven that people that, you know, make money aren't necessarily happy, they're not necessarily correlated. So that's not really something that I'm, you know, I just want to be comfortable and have a nice family and have something to be proud of. Well, that's a perfect way to wrap up and then just understand that it's been interesting to just hear your story and, and hear your passion for why you're into this, and, you know, why, why this is important for you and your commitment, you know, leaving the earth a better place than you found it. And I think that's really admirable. And I want to applaud you on your journey and the launch and the success of the company, because it's not an easy environment. There's a lot of buzz around it, but that doesn't necessarily translate to having success in this industry. So congrats and kudos to you and the team for what you've put together so far and to your ongoing success. Thank you very much. And it's been a pleasure to have this chat. And thanks for inviting me on. Likewise, verticalfuture.com is the website. There's any other place we should direct folks to learn more about you and or the company? I think um, LinkedIn is where we do a lot of our activity. We don't really focus on the other social media platforms. So find us on LinkedIn. Very importantly, it's Vertical Future. You didn't get it wrong, but a lot of people get it wrong. There's no S on the end. <laughs> so it's um, this is a <laughs> common mistake that people end up thinking they're going after a vertical farming company. And I think <laughs> maybe a good trading company or something. Okay. Verticalfuture.com. And then if you want to get in touch, you can email us at info at verticalfuture.co.uk. Okay. One thing I did forget to mention is that because of this audience and because of who listens to the podcast, is there anything that you have that would be an ask or just a message to your colleagues and folks in the industry? Be more transparent. Don't over-accentuate what you could deliver on. And let's build this together. Building something together doesn't mean sharing IP. It just means that, you know, we you know, we're on the same page and, you know, we're, we're all going in the right direction. There are lots of customers out there that we can go after and it doesn't need to be a cutthroat industry. This is a long-term industry here. This is not a quick, quick fire sure. thing. So that would be my main message. And to be fair, I'm in contact regularly with CEOs of some of the quote, you know, biggest vertical farming companies in the world in terms of capital raised and, and they're lovely people and they're exactly on the same page. Yeah. And that's a consistent message that I've been hearing throughout these episodes as well. So I'm glad you continue to deliver that message. Thanks again for your time, Jamie. I really appreciate it. No problem. Have a nice evening. Thanks again to Jamie for coming on the show and sharing his story. As always, I value the time that people spend on the show. I don't take it for granted. And I'm grateful when they let their guard down a little bit and share some of the insights into what got them to where they are today. And I think that's what's been inspiring for me and for the feedback I've, I'm getting from listeners of the show. Thanks again to our Season 5 title sponsor, Cultivated. If you are looking into a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, reach out to them today. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Learn more at cultivated.com, and that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Just leave out that last E. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Learn more at fullcast.co. As a reminder, if you are enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. I'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. Next week, we have a return guest. It's Nicola Kerslake of Contain, giving us an update on what's happening in her world. So looking forward to having that conversation and sharing it with you. Until we meet again next week, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published. Mm-hmm.